and welcome to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And today's guests are Brent Ridge and Josh Kilmer Purcell, the founders of Beekman 1802. Welcome, Brent. Hi, Priya. Welcome, Josh. Hi, Priya. Thank you for being here. So guys, you know, you had a little bit of an unusual start to launching your brand and entering the beauty world uh, back in 2008. Will you tell us a little bit about how you launched Beekman 1802? Of course. Not as a beauty brand. We, uh-huh. we say that we're uh, consummate outsiders in the industry, um, but we were two city guys living yeah. and working in New York City. Brent was a physician, a geriatrician at Mount Sinai Hospital, and then Martha Stewart hired him to start the health and wellness division of Martha Stewart Omnimedia. And I was in advertising, and I'd written a couple of books. And we were driving in upstate New York one weekend, 2006, and we came across this little town called Sharon Springs, population 547. And we are on our way out of town. We saw this amazing farm built by a man named William Beekman in 1802, and it was for sale, and we bought it. We were like those Manhattan guys that, you know, we wanted to have a weekend hobby farm. How much was this um, house back then? Um, well, it was the height. It was just pre-recession. This is the issue. Just pre-recession, it was almost a million dollars for an empty farm in upstate New York. Wow. We, we took seemed, out a million dollar mortgage to buy the farm. Seemed like wow. a great deal in 2006. Of course. It, it was not. Uh, and uh, so, and then in 2008, the recession hit. Um, media, of course, was hit really hard. Both Brent and I lost our jobs within 30 days of each other. Oh, my God. And we had to figure out how we were going to pay for this new farm that we had just bought. And one weekend we came up to the farm and a local farmer, Farmer John, uh, was losing his farm and had written a note and put it in our mailbox and said, I have my herd of goats. Could I bring them to your property to graze? Otherwise I'll have to sell them. And um, so we took him in and we were just trying to think, oh my goodness, how are we going to cover the mortgage on the farm, feed this farmer and the 80 goats? And so we Googled, what can we make with goat milk? And, of course, the first thing that comes up in the search engine is cheese. And we're like, okay, well, we're going to make cheese, but you have to become a grade A certified dairy, and there was a lot of expenses with that. And then the next thing on the list was goat milk soap. And so we found a local soap maker, soap maker Deb McGillicuddy, and she taught us how to make the goat milk soap. And we started using it ourselves on our own skin and we thought wow this is really good the goat milk is really good for the skin because the winters are so harsh up there and so we're like i think we could make a business out of this and so having come from the city i went and did cold calls on virtually every beauty department in the city so Saks, barney's bergdorf henry bindle the only one who would give us a shot was henry bindle back in the day because this was going on almost 10 years ago and the beauty buyer there said well you know what it's holiday season coming up i will give you a spot on our you know avenue of dreams that was there in the beginning at the front of the store and if you come here every day and talk about the soaps we'll give you a shot so brent got up every day at three in the morning drove into the city with a pickup truck full of soap stood on the floor of Bendel's every day for stole, 10 hours for 10 hours got back in the truck drove home you know got in bed at midnight and slept for a few hours and went, every day went back into that so backtrack a little bit guys um Brent and Josh from your perspective this seems like a big leap you know moving mm-hmm. out losing your job moving out of the city taking on these 80 goats and then making soap like yeah. what was the timeline that was occurring when all this happened? Well, I mean, it was 2008 was when we lost our jobs. And and I went back to freelancing in the city, so I was commuting back and forth as well while we were trying to get this company off the ground because, of course, you're not going to pay a million-dollar mortgage 
on your first day making goat milk soap. So, um, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, Are you sure? I know, I know. Plan B. Um, but we, uh, so it was really, th- we started growing the company in 2008, 2009. Um, we had some great television exposure in those early years, um, both with our own series and then with The Amazing Race. Um, and we really looked at media as marketing tools because we had no money at that point to invest in marketing. And uh, that's how we grew. We, we, we grew working with our neighbors. And one thing that m- many people who know us for beauty don't know is that we started in all categories. So we started uh, making the cheese, as Brent said. We also uh, worked with weavers and potters and blacksmiths in our region, creating these one-of-a-kind artisanal goods. Um, and so our, our initially, we were working in all these categories, and we still do work with all those artisans today, even though the beauty category has sort of been the major focus of the business. So what kind of gave you the gumption to start this company? I mean, you know, when you talk about some of the brands that you went out to at the beginning, even Henry Bendel's, mm-hmm. um, and some of the other beauty brands or fashion brands that took off in 2008 or launched, mm-hmm. they're not around anymore. Mm-hmm. You guys are. So what was that even like? You know, I think having both come from very rural backgrounds, I grew up in North Carolina. Josh grew up in um, Wisconsin, both from kind of lower middle class families. And we always just had a really strong work ethic. And then being in this region of upstate New York, which is very agricultural, um, kind of hard scrabble and impoverished. Um, we just have always been embedded in that kind of mentality that you just keep working. And for the first eight years of the company, we never drew a salary. We just kept investing into product development and trying to grow the business in a very organic way. And, you know, it, it's interesting because so many companies that have come after that period, um, kind of with the the upswing in social media and Instagram and whatnot, um, I think our saving grace as a company was that we were we predated that just by a little bit, um, and so we really had managed to create a really rock solid foundation of customers and really engaged customers and customers who were coming back for repeat purchases. Um, so we weren't kind of all built on a house of cards, um, and I think that was really our saving grace. So when did you think you had something that was going to last? You know, back in the day after those. 10 hours at Bendel's selling soap by yourself. Well, you know, our our other big break was while I was on the floor of Bendel, um, the beauty buyer from Anthropology came through Bendel. And, um, you know, we, we pay a lot of attention to our packaging and everything, so everything looks really beautiful. And um, she fell in love with uh, what we were doing, and Anthropology brought us in, and we designed a whole little collection of lotions and soaps and candles and everything. So Anthropology really gave us our first major national break. Um, and then it just kept kind of building gradually from there. Um, we built our website. We learned how to code our website ourselves. When and was that? That was 2008. So, yeah, when when we first uh, decided to start the company, we had to learn everything ourselves. We had no team, obviously no outside investment of any sort. So we learned to code. We we learned, you know, all, social media advertising at the time, digital advertising. Um, everything we did ourselves. Photography, all the product shots we, we were doing ourselves. You know, it was really just us and our tiny little team in, in uh, Sharon Springs. And we actually stayed that way up until 2000 and what, 15, when we first mm-hmm. had TV retail. And that's really what unlocked the potential of the brand. Otherwise, we had just kept growing very slowly, very organically. Uh, but we were doing a book signing for one of our cookbooks um, at a Williams-Sonoma in um, Minneapolis. And a beauty buyer from a smaller TV um, shopping network called Evine 
came to the book signing and handed us her card and said, you know, we would love for you to come on and sell your beauty products on Evine. And, and neither one of us were, were familiar with TV retail at no. all. We weren't TV retail shoppers. Um, but, and the, the first thing we thought was like, how, why do people stop on these stations? Like if they're just clicking through, what do they stop? And so Brent actually had the idea. He said, let's bring baby goats. So we brought baby goats uh, to the studio and, uh, you know, day one, it was us in practically a suitcase, a suitcase full of soap and, and three baby goats. And we, we, we blew up on TV retail. It was huge. And now, you know, of course, we went from Yvonne to HSN to QVC. So go back a little bit. When you think about, you know, the TV retail piece, because HSN and QVC is the lion's share of your business today mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. kind of driving those retail sales. Mm-hmm. Um, why were you so bullish on it? Why were you so, like, you know, you took the approach of make this entertainment with mm-hmm. goats. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think people were thinking about that in no, 2015. No, right. it, I mean, it, it was to be disruptive because, you know, the average person who's clicking through their station stay very short time on the channel. So we're like, how can we keep them engaged in the process? And if you're trying to see, oh, what is that baby goat going to do next? You're going to stay on the channel. And the longer you stay on the channel, the more you hear about the product or you hear the, the, the people calling in and giving a testimonial. And they're like, I've got to try this product too. Everyone says it's so great. So that was really our approach to that. I wouldn't say that we were bullish on it, but we we didn't know better. We didn't know, but but we but we quickly became bullish on it because I always say TV uh, retail it's like door to door sales except you're knocking on 120 million doors at once. So you're really talking directly to your consumer, or as we we call our customers' neighbors. So we're talking directly to our neighbors. And um, you're getting lifetime feedback. They're calling in. You're seeing if they're buying. You know immediately. You know if, if they're if they're purchasing. You get you know dollars per minute. Um, so you get this feedback. You, it's a really true. I think it's one of the truest connections you can have on a mass scale between you know a company and in uh, consumers. So will you describe who this customer is first? I mean, is it women on the coast? Is it in the middle of the country? Are they twenty? Are they forty? Are they sixty? Will you give us a little bit of background? Yeah, our, our demographic is actually surprisingly large and wide. Um, we, we often say we have Beekman families because um, the, the woman of the household will usually become engaged with the brand first. Um, and then they'll say, oh, and then my husband picked up this thing I was using. And now he, you know, he's a Beekman. And then uh, I gave it to my daughter. And then we have a little baby line. And so they start their kids off. And, um, and, and we love that. We love that we cross so many different generations, so many socio-demographic lines. Um, yeah, I mean, we're actually 72% female, 28% male, which is pretty amazing. It's a beauty company. But again, that's TV retail. Uh, you know, uh, uh, men are just as inter- interested in skincare, but they n- may not be wandering into a beauty retailer, you know, in the mall. But on TV retail, they're going by the channels just like anybody else, and they listen to the story. And and so that's why we have such a large percentage of males um, comparison to the rest of the industry. But the other thing I think is fascinating is that we are really evenly spread between 25 and, and 60 plus. I mean, it's remarkable if you look at our demographics, how each age demographic is almost the same. You know, there's very, I mean, I, I just think that's incredible. I can't think of any other brand that's like that. So will you little talk a little bit about QVC? Because I know Rob at QVC yeah, loves great. you guys uh-huh. and talks about you guys all yeah, the time. Yeah, Rob. And also, you know, that Baby Goat example, you know, you brought that to Beauty Bash, their first beauty festival in like over a decade. But, you know, QVC has a largely older customer. It's what someone would call maybe 40 plus. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge penetration there. So mm-hmm. when you think about TV retail today, you know, 
people don't seem to have figured it out the way um, they have mm-hmm. on YouTube or Instagram. So how are you getting those younger customers? How are you kind of swinging that way? Um, well, I do think a lot starts with the QVC customer. And then because there are so many engaging elements to the story, um, you know, you have this idea that these two guys lost everything and they built this business that engages people, the baby goats engage people. And it's just a brand that people want to talk about. So if the doorway into the brand is through that QVC customer, there's so many different things that she wants to tell her husband about or her daughter about or her grandchild about. And we say that we built our business neighbor by neighbor by neighbor because even up until the days when we launched on Evine, we had no marketing budget. Like that has always been the philosophy of our company is that we want to make a product so good that you feel compelled to tell someone else about it. Um, And that's really what the TV retail customer enjoys doing is retelling our story. And I think when you when you look at HSN, when you look at QVC, um, we focus a lot in those channels. We'll focus on giftables, um, in, especially during Q4, and because they're they're big gifters. So when when they're gifting to their family or their neighbors or to their children, their grandchildren, um, they have this story. You know, they have the story of these two guys and these two goats that they're you know watching on on TV, and and that's how sort of the whole family then gets enveloped in it. How do you think that's made you resilient in the face of current beauty retail? You know, the reliance on department stores lessening, you know, even Ulta and Sephora are having their moments of struggle. So how do you think that TV retail maybe allowed you to sidestep that? Well, certainly they have a very loyal customer base. Um, And I think that there, even to that customer base, there had not been a really um, big launch in those categories in so many years because people were focused on going to Ulta and to Sephora. And so um, when we came on and were really disruptive in that partic- to that particular customer base, um, I think it was really monumental. And that's why, you know, when we launched on HSN, we became the biggest beauty launch ever uh, across HSN or QVC um, because we were doing something in a way that was different than that audience had seen things done. And plus, we, we try to form a real relationship with our neighbors, like beyond just the TV retail, beyond digital advertising. So, you know, we have a magazine. We have, uh, you know, we did a holiday catalog, not just, you know, we didn't, don't just put all our money into digital advertising. Um, we have events in Sharon Springs. You know, our Harvest Festival in tiny little Sharon Springs drew over 18,000 people this year, 18,000 um, neighbors, you know, brand loyalists. So I think that, to me, I think that makes us a little more resilient or at least, um, people stay a little more loyal because you're not just breaking up with a product if you choose another product you're actually you know you're you're breaking up with Brent and Josh you're breaking up with Sharon Springs you're breaking up with the baby goats so you know there there it is a, a deeper relationship and in fact we just finished um, our 24-hour holiday marathon which runs across Facebook Live and YouTube. And that started seven years ago when we only had five employees. And on the last shipping day, we knew we were going to be packing boxes for 24 hours straight to get all the orders out in time. And so we opened up our laptop computer and turned on the camera and just started streaming it on Facebook. And so it just ha- so people, we would actually hold up packages and be like, you know, Sue Smith, your, your package is on its way. And, uh, and we noticed that first year, just with the little laptop camera live streaming, um, 
I forget how many thousands of people we had, but their average time, watch time was five and a half hours. So they watched us packing boxes for five and a half hours. That's wild. And now it's a tradition. So we just had our seventh annual um, yesterday, and and we've become more savvy. So it's slightly more produced. So we have guests, and we do product sales during the you know during the marathon. But people still watch four or five. We we even had neighbors who called in who watched all twenty four hours. They didn't miss a single minute of the marathon, and they look at it as we feel about it that it's a way to give back to our community of customers, neighbors, um, because they see, okay, they're, they still care about us. They're building this brand one neighbor at a time, and they can watch that and they our can na- be a part yeah. of it. Our neighbors feel as responsible for our growth and success as we do. How does that compare to what, what else is happening in the industry? Because I've heard from a lot of other brand founders and a lot of other executives that customers are no longer brand loyal, they're product loyal. They mm-hmm. are they f- are fixated on one item in an assortment and mm-hmm. then they shop around. You know, mm-hmm. they're fickle. Mm-hmm. They're looking for the next best thing. So that's how right. does that necessarily play within your assortment? Oh, that's well, a good I, I was just want to say, I don't see that as a reflection on the customer as much as I see it as a reflection on the brand. Explain that. If you are, if you are putting all of your energy and all of your passion into just launching the, the latest product, of course you're not going to build loyalty. Um, it's really, it's the brand's responsibility to build loyalty. You can't just say people aren't loyal to me anymore. It's a two-way street. Um, so you have to be as committed to um, your neighbors and your community, your, your customers, as they are. So, I mean, I don't know. That's my take on it. And when I do think social media and um, the interest of private equity um, has really forced the hand on that. And so a lot of brands have to do that. They have to have that hero product. They have to have that big sale out of that big story um, because their timeline for the company is so much more compressed and so much shorter than what we ever had. You know, we when we started Beekman 1802, we never knew that we were going to be this, you know, one of the largest independent beauty companies. You know, that's what was never our goal or our purpose. Our goal was to make great products, make people happy, and pay the mortgage off on the farm. And so we, we've we never taken on any private equity. We've never taken on any debt. It's just been growing little bit by little bit by little bit, one neighbor at a time. And I think that's why our company is the way it is. You know, we, we have a very kind of long-term view of where the company should go. Um, you know, if, if you're putting all of your focus and all of your energy and all of your dollars on customer acquisition versus customer retention, then that becomes your company. Your company is only about getting new people. So go back a bit. You know, when you think about when you fund, founded this company, mm-hmm. how much did you start the company with? Well, zero we, dollars. we had less than zero dollars. Less than zero dollars. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so today, you know, there is so much activity in the M&A space in private equity. Mm-hmm. You're still self-funded. Is mm-hmm. this something that you're exploring? Are you looking for investment? Are you looking for partners? Um, at this time, we're not. Um, it's not that we would never do that. Um, but I think that we would have to have a really compelling reason to do that because, you know, we've been a profitable company since the first year, um, we haven't had the uh, the need to take on um, any uh, additional investors. I think if we ever decided to take on additional additional investment, it would be to do something w- that we didn't think that we could accomplish on our own. So something in you know more advanced sustainable packaging or um, development in international markets. Those are the type of strategic um, investing partners that we would probably consider. But right now, we still have a yeah. lot of neighbors to meet in America, so we're focused yeah, on that. Yeah, to your point, we started with zero dollars, and you know we were profitable from from day one. We had to be. That was the only way. There was no uh, uh, private investment. There was there was no 
during the recession, there was no money to be had. So um, we didn't need it. And we sort of grew in the way now that we we still don't need it. What is great about all the activity in private equity in the M&A world is that there's, uh, you know, a great amount of knowledge available. So we'll speak to people in that world um, if we, you know, if, if we ha- have questions about an area of the industry or, or, or something that we want to do. So that knowledge is accessible, um, but currently we don't have have need for the uh, the actual money. How does this play back to your direct-to-consumer site, which is about 20% of your business, mm-hmm. um, and this idea of an omni-channel strategy? You know, you, you mentioned a second ago, Josh, that um, it's not all about customer acquisition. It's about mm-hmm. customer retention. But everybody who is doing anything on digital is so focused on right. customer acquisition. Right. What's your take? Well, I mean, I think since we've been around for 10 years now, we, we've heard everything. We've heard that, you know, the the next wave is all DTC. The next wave is is marketing has to be all influencer, um, you know, or it's all private equity money, or it's all retail is dead. Yeah, re- yeah, is dead. no more retail. <laughs> but you know, we've done a little bit of everything to the best of our ability the entire ten years we've been together. Um, so yes, c- customer acquisition is important. You can't just ignore it, but it has to be balanced by customer retention. It has to be um, balanced. Um, uh, just by smart operational growth, that all the, all everything needs to be balanced. It's not one thing or the other, and I think that's where companies get into trouble, especially when they're taking on private equity and they have those additional pressures and time constraints. Is that they want one answer, they want it now, and they need it to work by tomorrow, and so they put all their all their their money on one bet. How does how does that play into what you're doing with digital marketing now? Like, are you working with influencers? Do you think that they work? Are you doing paid social? What's your yeah. take? We have we hired our first social media um, uh, coordinator for the company six months ago, so we're very brand new to uh, you know using social media marketing outside there. You know our own post are pretty farm pictures. Um, and so you were doing no paid social prior to that. No paid social until, until six, six months, months ago. ago? Yeah. <laughs> And, um, you know, and, and she, uh, you know, Haley is our social media manager and she's fantastic. Um, and we are starting to, um, reach out to some influencers. Um, but we don't really see that as a a huge part of our strategy. We think it is an important part of the strategy. Like if you're going to operate in the, in the beauty industry, you need to have that, but we don't see that as the main driver. We say it's a component of our overall marketing strategy, but our overall marketing strategy also includes our partners at QVC and HSN. It includes, you know, going to um, a major specialty retailer partner um, sometime in the next year. And more uh, inter- and includes- interesting partnerships as well. So we just did a partnership with Sony Pictures for A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the new Mr. Rogers movie, because as we said, all of our customers are called neighbors and it's just a, you know, part of our DNA of our company is pure kindness. So we saw Mr. Rogers in this movie as a natural fit. So we created a collection for QVC that was based around this movie, the based around kindness to neighbors, the 143 connection, which that was Mr. Rogers' secret number, meant I love you, 143. Um, so for us, that's that that becomes its own social media um, partnership, you know, its own influencer partnership, but it's not a traditional beauty influencer. How does that um, play back to what you said at the beginning, Josh? You said a second ago that you used media as marketing. Mm-hmm. And these partnerships, whether it's QVC or, you know, Mr. Rogers, mm-hmm. new the new Mr. Rogers movie, that seems very much, in a way, old school. It's not, yeah. you know, new school in the sense that you were on TikTok talking to the latest influencer about XYZ product launch. Yep. How has that been able to 
withstand the current changes in the market. Well, that's okay. So like I, I said before, we do a little bit of everything and we try to do it really well because we know customers are a little bit of everything. Guess what? Customers are not watching beauty influencers 24 hours a day. So if you're putting all of your money into beauty influencer marketing, um, you're just missing such a huge swath of the of the consumer potential. Uh, customers are going to movies. Um, so we want to meet them there. We want to meet them on social media. We have, you know, we still have products outside of beauty um, from from our our legacy days. We 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 make these amazing artisanal products because guess what? Beauty customers like home goods. You know, artisanal home goods. Beauty customers like um, fun candy. So we have our we have our our go poop chocolates. So we we know that consumers are really well rounded people. They're they're not just watching beauty influencers. All right. Time. Beauty is just part of their life. And we say, you know, we, we want to be that beauty company that helps you make your entire life beautiful. Um, and I know that is kind of a jumping off point from the idea of wellness and beauty as wellness. Um, but um, it, we just want to be all encompassing. And, you know, we say, you know, the, the best beauty regimen is a smile on your face. And that's what we try to do at Beekman 1802. Just make sure that however the customer, the neighbor interacts with us, we leave them with a smile on their face. How do you think that compares to what other companies are doing? Because, you know, the the lifestyle play is something that we're seeing a lot. You know, I'm a cosmetics brand and now I'm a yoga brand or mm-hmm. I'm a cosmetic brand and now I'm going to do ingestible health or, you know, you're trying to be a sexual wellness brand or, you know, there's so much crossover today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you think that your origins as a lifestyle company gives you more authority and, you know, more transparent initiatives and say other brands who are kind of just playing in it absolutely because that there's there's the phrase right there playing in it and uh we um we used to have a quarter jar in the office where anytime somebody said lifestyle they would have to put a quarter in because lifestyle just seems like you've styled a brand or you've styled a life you owe us a quarter priya yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'll so. give, i don't know if i have one but i'll give you one <laughs> nobody has a quarter that's why we had to stop nobody has quarters um so we always called ourselves i'll a, venmo you okay there we go you. a venmo we should have a venmo box um we um so we always called ourselves a living brand because this was our life. You know, the the other products we were making was because our neighbor was a blacksmith or our neighbor was a weaver or our neighbor was a candy maker. So we were living these things. Um, it was a, it, it came from a place of authenticity as much as I don't like that word. It's true. And I do think that our history, you know, we've been doing this for 10 years. It's been well-documented. People can come to Sharon Springs. They can do tours of the farm. They can come to the Mercantile on Main Street. They can talk to the neighbors on Main Street about what Beekman 1802 has meant to that community. So there is a true authenticity there. It's not a manufactured authenticity of someone saying, hey, I do yoga. Okay, I'm a yoga brand now. Um, It's a well-documented legacy um, of community building. It comes right down to, I mean, uh, anyone can say, hey, we put goat milk in a product or, hey, we're not cruel to animals. Guess what? We actually have goats and we treat them very well. You know, I mean, that's, it's a true difference. When you think about 2020 and where you want to go, what is top of mind? Is it social media? Is it more product? Is it more experiential events? Well, we always go where the neighbors lead us. Um, And over the past three years, the biggest growth um, in our company has been in skincare. Um, You know, we started in Bath and Body and then went into hair care and and then skincare because skincare takes a little bit more intensive formulation and, and, and research. And so we'll be building out our skincare offerings, um, you know, because QVC and HSN have driven um, much of our product development over the past few years, we started out in the better aging 
category. We never say anti-aging. We always say better aging. And, um, you know, now we're just developing more and more skincare products, but not make it too elaborate. We always want to tell our neighbor that beauty does not have to be complicated. It does not have to require 30 different products. You need a product that can exfoliate, you need a product that can cleanse, and you need a product that can moisturize. Now, we may offer a couple of different items um, for specific skin types within each of those categories, but that is really all you need um, is to exfoliate, to cleanse, and to moisturize, and of course, sun protection as well. Um, but we don't want to overcomplicate things. We want to have simple ingredients, simple products, but they all have a really strong work, that, work ethic. Our focus, you were asking, our focus, our focus on 2020. Uh, in 2020, we'll be developing the skincare line more fully. What do you think about the current skincare boom happening right now? We know that color cosmetics is softened. We know that a recession is possible mm-hmm. next year. Do you think skincare is going to be affected? Well, first, recessions don't scare us. Yeah. <laughs> we, we were born We've out navigated of recession. that. Right. Right. We've done that one. Yeah, I do think that um, everybody's going to feel a recession if and when it does happen. And um, I think that the companies that are built on um, using private equity money for customer acquisition are going to have a hard time in that environment. Um, But, you know, we try to price our products at a level that people can aspire to um, and that um, also seem luxury to people who are in the luxury market. So we do try to price ourselves in that prestige category. And what we try to educate people, and as as you know very well, um, that you know, there, there are certain prices that every ingredient costs. There are certain prices that every bit of packaging costs. Um, and once you are operating in a certain strata of product, almost all the products are offering the same amount of efficacy. Um, you know, if you're paying $300 for a cream, the ingredients in that cream are not doing any more for you than a $40 cream. Um, they may, you know, the, the, the products in that prestige category may be doing a little bit better for you than the $10 cream. Um but I think that that price point that we operate in using the best ingredients um, with the, the most effect, efficacy that we can get um, will we'll weather the recession because our neighbors will know that we're not trying to add an exorbitant markup onto it because they know we're not doing a huge marketing spend. We're just giving them the very best product for the very best price that they can get. And as you, as you mentioned, skincare are sort of eclipsing um, you know, color. Uh, skincare will be through a recession. That's, that is more of a necessity than having, you know, a drawer full of every single cosmetic there is. So I, I think the skincare industry will, will be better um, set to, to withstand the recession. You mentioned a second ago about luxury and prestige and where you're, where you're sitting within, within the market. How does that play back to, you know, such a dependence on, on certain retailers? You know, whether it's you and yourself with QVC and HSN, you have such a strong relationship, or whatever's happening at Sephora and their best partner and Ulta and their best partner. How do you kind of navigate whether you are too dependent, not dependent enough, you know, in times like these when so much is changing? Well, we always look for true partnerships. Um, So, you know, no matter who we're working with, so whether it's our independent wholesalers who carry our bath and body, we form true partnerships with them to help them grow their business. In the same way with our partnership with Rob at QVC and HSN, we really collaborate with every member of their team from their marketing to their social to the on-air talent to make a true partnership because we want their business to succeed as well as our business. And, you know, this year, if we um, ultimately decide to go into, um, you know, especially retailer, Sephora or Ulta, 
it will be because one of those proved that they could be a better partner for us um, because we believe that it's not about just the growth of our company and how successful we're going to be. It's about how successful we can also make our partner because we are have always been about the long-term focus and, and not the short-term focus. Yeah, in fairness, you're, you're you know, talking about um, – you know how dependent you are on one channel versus another channel, but as long as you're, as long as you have fairness with that particular channel, as Brent said, we're a true partnership. We're not trying to leverage our success over over their success. Um, I think then when times do get tough, the true partners will step forward and say, "Guys, you worked with us. We'll work with you. We're going to get through this." Last question, Brent. Last question, Josh. Okay. Is beauty recession proof? I believe that it is. I believe that is. I think it's just like movies or just like entertainment, um, that people are always going to want to um, use something or buy something that's going to make themselves feel a little bit better. Um, I think that um, there will be a little bit of scaling back in, the, in, in a recession, but people will always buy things that make them have a better outlook on life. And I think your, your skin is your skin, and you will always be presenting your skin to the world. So, you know, fashion, you may need to trade down a little bit. Cars, accessories, you know, home decor, all that may have to trade down a little bit. You're always going to be presenting your skin to the world. So I think that is area people will always spend a little money on. Thank you, Josh. Thanks, Priya. Thank you, Brent. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Tune in next week for another episode. And of course, that means if you haven't subscribed, please hit that button.